hello, Rebels. You're listening to a free audio-only recording of my weekly Wednesday night show, The Gun Show. Now, tonight, my guest is Dr. Dennis Modry. He was on the show a little while ago talking about what he thought were the failures of the province of Alberta's pandemic response. And when he was on the show, he hinted that he had some opinions about Western separation, and I am ready to hear them. So he's on the show tonight. If you like listening to the show, then I promise you're going to love watching it. But in order to watch, you need to be a subscriber to Rebel News Plus. That's what we call our long-form TV-style shows here on Rebel News. Subscribers get access to my show, as well as Ezra's nightly Ezra Levant show, and David Menzies' fun Friday night show, Rebel Roundup. And there's actually a fourth show in the mix now. My friend Andrew Chapados has a brand new show called Andrew Says. And for all of that, it's only eight bucks a month to subscribe. And just for our podcast listeners, you can save an extra 10% on a new Rebel News Plus subscription by using the coupon code podcast when you subscribe. Just go to rebelnewsplus.com to become a member. And now please enjoy this free audio-only version of my show. Is Western separatism the answer to preventing yet another bungled response the next time a pandemic comes along? A doctor who's already been highly critical of the province's pandemic response sure thinks so. I'm Sheila Gunn-Reed, and you're watching The Gun Show. Ago, I had Dr. Dennis Modry on the show. Dr. Dennis Modry is a highly respected, highly accomplished heart and thoracic surgeon here in Alberta. He's retired, but he did perform his first heart transplant surgery at just age 34. I'm clearly not doing enough with my life. Anyway, when Dr. Modry wrote an open letter to Premier Jason Kenney, critical of the province's pandemic response, and not just being a critic, but offering a solution and an off-ramp for change, I wanted to hear from him because I felt like he had a very unique perspective in all of this as a doctor. But there's so much more to Dr. Modry. He's someone that I would describe as a conservative insider. He was on Premier Ralph Klein's finance committee when Ralph Klein paid down the Alberta debt to zero. Modry sat on the finance committees for Premier's Lougheed, Getty, Klein, and Stelmack. And he's also on the Wildrose Independence Party of Alberta Executive Board. So he went from being someone who was working with premiers who were ready to keep Alberta in confederation to now wanting Alberta to leave. And I wanted to hear more about that. Last time Dr. Dennis Modry was on my show. He told me that he would be interested in sharing with me his ideas about Western separation and Alberta independence. And friends, I got a deluge of emails from my viewers saying, Sheila, 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 when are you having Dr. Modry back on? So joining me today in an interview we recorded yesterday morning is Dr. Dennis Modry, pandemic response critic and Western separatist. Now from Calgary is Dr. Dennis Modry. And many of you will remember that I had uh, Dr. Modry on the show a little while ago to talk about his criticisms of the province's pandemic response um, and his solutions. Uh, he offered an off ramp to the uh, government about how to change courses um, with regard to the pandemic. They haven't listened to him uh, because uh, the lockdown has gotten far worse in Alberta. But during that interview, uh, Dr. Modry said that he would be willing to come back on the show to talk about Alberta independence, and that was very requested. Um, people were emailing me asking me to have uh, Dr. Dennis Modry back on the show, so he's been very generous with his time. He's back on. Dr. Dennis Modry, thank you so much for joining me. 
Delighted to be here once again, Sheila. Now, before we get into um, your uh, opinions and um, your, I guess, solutions for the Alberta independence movement, I wanted to talk to you about what happened over the weekend here in Alberta, because you and I were both there at mm -hmm. the whistle stop um, for the protest on Saturday. And Chris Scott, the owner of the whistle stop, was ultimately arrested for breaching the restraining order that the province got against him and Glenn Carrot of United We Roll and ultimately all of us, you and me, because we are unnamed Jane and John Doe's in that restraining order, preventing us from promoting, organizing or attending what the province calls illegal public gatherings, which is the Orwellian term they're using to describe political protests and peaceful assembly these days. I just wanted to get your opinion on what happened um, at the whistle stop. And I guess what's happening to Chris now, because as we're recording this on Tuesday morning, he's still in jail. Right. Well, you know, um, obviously uh, to most right thinking people, um, people shouldn't be jailed for expressing uh, their views and after all, we do have constitutional laws that protect our freedoms and our rights um, to free speech and to assembly. And so this was certainly a tremendous um, uh, breach of those civil rights. No, no question about that. And the argument with respect to um, containing COVID-19 by preventing an assembly like this just doesn't hold water with respect to the data. And um, this is all going to play out in court, of course, uh, over time. The class action lawsuit it, it has been launched in Canada. The Supreme Court has agreed to hear it. And so we'll see where all of this goes. But I've, as I've always said, follow the evidence. And, and what does the evidence tell you? And this is, this is one of those uh, um, areas in terms of following the evidence where um, many politicians, the premier, uh, Dr. Hinshaw, et cetera, are not following the evidence. They're following their preconceived views based on historical evidence. And that evidence has been proven uh, to be spectacularly inaccurate as exactly what the premier said with respect to about Theresa Tan, releasing modeling that time after time um, is spectacularly inaccurate, is not a great way to instill confidence in the public. But, but this is what has happened. And so to a very large extent, um, Dr. Henshaw, the premier, um, the government, and many people in the public have a really a really great problem with uh, what, what is cognitive dissonance, that inability to change their mind based on new evidence. And so I think it's tragic that Pastor Pulowski was even jailed, particularly in the manner that had, had happened, which is really offensive uh, by any stretch of the imagination. And then with Chris still being in jail, I'm quite, I, I mean, I don't know, I haven't spoken to him or anything, uh, but it's very likely that he's standing up for his, um, his civil rights, his freedom, and, and he's not going to accept um, whatever criteria have been imposed on him uh, would, were the case for him to be released. I, I don't believe he's willing to accept that, which is why he's still in jail and Pastor Pulowski is not. I mean, we, we, we all get to a breaking point in terms of what we're willing to do and, and not do. Um, and I just think it's tragic what, what, what is happening and, and what is going on. But there are solutions, you know, to this. Independence is one of them. Now, I just want to make a point, though, before we move on to independence. Thank you for that very excellent segue. Uh, <laughs> but you spoke at the protest at the whistle stop. Mm -hmm. And... I think the point needs to be made that by speaking at that protest and you could have been taken off to jail just like Chris was. And I just want to commend you on your bravery for being, you know, putting yourself out there like that. Um, because I think like me, you're probably a little too pretty for jail. 
<laughs> well, I'm, I'm not so I'm not I'm not so sure about that. I kind of I, I said to my wife before I left, um, you know, I may or may not be coming home, and um, and I thought, well, you know, I've 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 never experienced uh, being incarcerated um, except in my own home because of COVID nineteen, and I've objected to that and and have rebelled against being incarcerated in my own home. Uh, but I thought if if I was, uh, it would be um, a weight loss fitness program for me <laughs> while I was there. So <laughs> now, uh, Dr. Modri, you mentioned independence, and that's why I wanted to have you on the show. And part of your speech um, at the whistle stop over the weekend did touch on that. Uh, first, I want to go back a little bit. What do you think has led to this? Um, a fomenting of a Western separatist sentiment. I think we haven't seen something like this in about 10 or 15 years. I think the election of Stephen Harper extinguished a lot of it. Um, oh, what's happening now that's causing it to rise again? Well, I think there's a number of things. And um, I, before I get into the, the details on that, um, you know, it, it's worthwhile thinking about there is now the Maverick Party, which was yep. formerly Wexit Canada. Um, so there's a tremendous uh, view uh, by Westerners that uh, Canada is broken and can't be fixed. And um, there are hundreds of thousands of, of members, maybe millions now, who have signed on to the Wexit Canada concept, whether it be through the, the Maverick Party or uh, the provincial independence parties. So, you, and you look at what's happened in Saskatchewan with the development of the Buffalo Party, which is an independence party. Having been in, um, uh, prior to the last election, they were only operational for three months, but they came very close to winning the ridings they were competing in. Yep. So, and then you look in Alberta, there's the Alberta Advantage Party, the, um, the Alberta Independence Party, I guess it's the Independence Party of Alberta now, they changed their name, uh, Wild Rose Independence Party of Alberta. And um, these parties are growing their, their memberships and eventually I think they will come together at some point prior to the um, next election. And then we have also in Northern BC, um, discontent with uh, Vancouver, Victoria, Southern BC, if you will, uh, and there's a movement there as well, um, even as much as aligning itself with, uh, with Alberta. And I think, you know, realistically, if independence is, is, is going to occur, it probably would start with Alberta because I think it's as the youngest demographic and is probably harboring the greatest anger against uh, the draconian policies of um, the East uh, suppressing uh, Alberta. And so there's a lot that I can say about, um, you know, why we are here where we are now. But fundamentally, I think it's uh, both economic related, um, with a whole bunch of uh, related problems to the problem with the economy. And I think it's uh, now even accelerated because of the response of government to managing COVID-19 or poorly managing it in the way they have undertaken thus far. So um, does that sufficiently start off the- It does, discussion? it does. I think a lot of people are Western separatists um, as a, you know, just in the way of economic survival. They mm -hmm. see the federal government basically legislating them out of a job, landlocking the industry, attacking the industry. And I'm not just talking about oil and gas. I'm also talking yes. about the neglect of mm -hmm. agriculture. And every time Justin Trudeau goes to India, Canadian farmers get slapped with a tariff on their exports to mm -hmm. India. But I do think a, lo a lot of people now, especially during this last year or 14 months with response, like they are moving into the separatist camp um, mm -hmm. because of the response to COVID by the federal government, but also I think in large part in response to uh, the COVID regulations placed on us by Jason Kenney, who is an avowed federalist. So some of that I think too is backlash to Jason Kenney as well. Mm -hmm. So 
so let me let me pose this question and then answer it. Okay. Please. So the question is why independence? Okay. So I want to start off that way. Why independence? The first thing people need to understand is that throughout Alberta's history, no federal government or provincial government has ever been able to protect Alberta's interests or assure Alberta's future prosperity. And the way to think about the evolution from um, being part of Canada to not being part of Canada um, starts off with an understanding of just prior to Alberta's joining Confederation on September 1, 1905, it's important to put in context what the purpose was of Alberta joining Confederation at that time. And um, so I don't misquote, I'm, I've, I, I, I want to make reference to what the Interior Minister Clifford Sifton said uh, he was the Minister of Interior and um, um, in the Sir Wilfrid Laurier Liberal government in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And he was fundamentally responsible for bringing Alberta into uh, Confederation. And he said in 1904, just prior to uh, Alberta joining Canada, he said, we desire, in fact, every patriotic Canadian desires that the great trade of the prairies shall go to enrich our own people in the East, to build up our factories and our workshops of Eastern Canada and contribute in every legitimate way to its prosperity. Now, although he may have meant well, he assumed that Western interests would be subordinated to those of the East as just the natural order of things. Right. And fast forward to today, Justin Trudeau's uh, throne speech endorsed that view without even, without even Sifton's legi legitimate nod to the idea that the relationship should be mutually beneficial. So we've seen that in fact, uh, over time, it has not been mutually beneficial, maybe in some ways, partially, et cetera. But when, when, when you go from, <clears throat> Alberta's uh, union with Canada in September 1, 1905, and you look at what happened over the ensuing decades, it was pretty impressive because the immigrants that came here and the, and the people that were already here, uh, our native population, were incredibly hard workers. They had that work ethic, they were entrepreneurial, and they were building Alberta. And they were building Alberta at a rate that was exceeding uh, many of the other regions in Canada, to the extent that by the late 70s, there were two momentous things that were occurring uh, within Canada. Um, one of them was the developing sentiment in Quebec for secession. That was an extremely important um, development that was underway in the late 70s. Secondly, was the massive uh, demographic shift that was, that was occurring from elsewhere in Canada to Alberta, as well as um, Alberta becoming the economic center of power. And all of the major banks were moving their head offices to Calgary, that was the intention. The province was absolutely booming. Um, and so we all know what happened in 1980. And no matter what you think of Pierre Elliott Trudeau and his finance minister and um, uh, at that particular time, Mark Lalonde, along with Bay Street and Montreal, they came up with a brilliant plan, an absolutely brilliant plan. They were gonna keep Quebec in Canada by buying them, by um, basically bribing them to stay in Canada. And they were going to use um, the source of that bribe was going to be Alberta's wealth. And that was the genesis of the national energy policy. And so in perpetuity, billions of dollars flows from Alberta 
And as you know, it's somewhere in the order of 640 or $50 billion now has flown out of Alberta since 1980, of which the majority has gone to Quebec. And uh, no matter what the output is from Alberta, Quebec is guaranteed $10 billion. Now, it's very important to understand that what the purpose of um, the national energy policy was. It was not just to keep Quebec in Canada. It was also to ensure that in perpetuity, Alberta could never rise up again and challenge the East for, econ for economic power, demographic or economic power. And we've seen, we've, we've, we've seen how that has, has played out within uh, the constitution, for example. Um, we do not have representation by population, either in the House of Commons or the Senate. Um, it's, it's incredibly skewed uh, in favor of the East. Even the Supreme Court is, is a problem from the perspective that you've got three judges from Quebec, three from Ontario, two from the West, one from the East. Um, even that doesn't pass muster with respect to um, a, a demographic um, fairness in, in, in terms of uh, justices. But, but it didn't matter um, that the, the national energy, energy policy occurred at that time from, from this perspective. Although there were thousands of businesses that went under um, and it, there were suicides, businesses left the province or went under, like I said, despite all of that, some things started to occur. And, it, and it, it's only related to that entrepreneurial spirit that Albertans have um, and their hard work ethic that, that the economy started to rebound again. And particularly with respect to the Klein government, it was quite amazing um, you know, what had happened. Because as you know, when he left office, we had a surplus budget, I think, I think the government had 33 billion um, in assets and 17 billion in cash. The Heritage Trust Fund was topped up, et cetera. We were in great shape. We had a AAA bond rating. Now throughout the Getty era and the Klein era, era and the Stelmac era, I was um, uh, privileged to be on the finance committees of those three conservative governments. And I got to know Ralph extremely well. But despite the fact that Alberta was doing well, um, in 2003, I had an idea. And I had this idea because I didn't ever wanna see a national energy policy type problem occur again. And I also had this idea because there was this ongoing dysfunctional relationship between Alberta and Ottawa, between Klein and Kretchen. So at the annual general meeting, of the provincial government um, in 2003 in Red Deer. Um, I was walking with Ralph, just the two of us, and I, had an, I, and, and I told him about the idea that I had. And um, I said to him, I said, Ralph, if you were the, I, I, no, I said, I, I've got a solution, I think, to the dysfunctional relationship between Alberta and Ottawa. Would you like to hear about it? And he said, yeah, absolutely. And I said, okay, well, it's based on this question. Um, if you're the president or the prime minister of the sovereign country of Alberta and Canada came to you and said, we would like Alberta to join confederation under the current terms and cost of membership. Terms in which, for example, we don't have control of healthcare, we'd, we're losing control of our environment and we've got billions every year that are going to Ottawa. Under the current terms and cost of membership, would you want Alberta to join? And I loved his answer because it, was, it, it stuck with me forever and it, till the day I die. He said, to ask the question is to know the answer. Of course not. So that was a great segue for me to then say, Ralph, if you wouldn't join Alberta under the current, or join Canada under the current terms and cost of membership, do you not think that you and caucus have an ethical and moral and an economic responsibility to fix Alberta's role in confederation. He said, yes. And I said, okay, well, I've drafted some material. Let me put it all together 
and I'll, and I'll bring it to your attention. So in August of that year, I completed the document that I had run through academics like Ted Morton, constitutional lawyers like Jerry Shapur, um, um, politicians such as Don Mazankowski and Gary Marr and many others, uh, and numerous business people. It was about 100 people that reviewed the document, made, made suggestions. And um, I titled the document, Alberta at the Crossroads, Status Quo Refederation Autonomy. It's 61 pages. Happy to send it to anybody, send it to you, and you can send it to anybody Please. who would like to read it. But, but the purpose of that document was to, um, to give Ralph and his government uh, what he needed to fix Alberta's role in confederation. And if he was unable, unable to fix Alberta's role in confederation, then there was an alternative solution, which was autonomy. And how would you get to that point? What is the lever that you need to fix Alberta's role in confederation. There is only one, and that is a referendum on secession that is successful. There is, that is the only way it will happen. Now, um, now let, me, let, me, let me fast forward to where we are now. Um, we've seen what is, uh, what is likely to come in the future. Uh, Justin Trudeau has uh, stated that he wants to phase out our oil and gas industry. That is so ridiculous, uh, despite what the, all of the uh, climate alarmists are saying, because we're never gonna be um, without a need for the hydrocarbon industry. Um, as I've pointed out before, there are over 6,000 products that emanate from the oil and gas industry. We would go back to the stone age without it. Mm -hmm. Now. In October of this year coming up, um, uh, our premier is going to have, at least he has said that he is going to have a, um, a referendum on equalization. And it's pretty obvious that Albertans uh, are not real happy about equalization. And he will get a mandate from Albertans to take this um, um, request of the federal government to open the constitution to change uh, equalization. <clears throat> now, if you think about that and you understand anything about what is necessary to achieve that um, change to the constitution, it requires um, support by vote in, this, in the House of Commons support by vote in the um, Senate, and it requires seven of 10 provinces legislatures. Now understand that seven of 10 provinces legislatures representing 50% of the population also voting in favor. Well, the demographic for voting power is Eastern Canada. Right. It also requires one other thing, um, and that's for Quebec not to veto it because in the constitution, the way it's set with respect to equalization, they're guaranteed $10 billion a year out of, out of Alberta. Well, we, we're seeing what's happening with the gutting of our economy. So it's, it's simply impossible uh, to, um, to achieve the second objective of that paper that I drafted, status quo refederation autonomy. Refederation meaning fixing Alberta's role in confederation. This is what Jason would like to do. And I admire the idea, but if he's unwilling to put independence on the table um, and achieve a mandate from Albertans, it's impossible in my opinion to change the constitution to benefit Alberta, Saskatchewan, and the West in general. So, so that is why I've come to the conclusion that um, independence is the only path forward. So the next question you're probably thinking to ask me, and, I, and interrupt me at any time, is nope. how, how, how would we achieve that? Yes. How would we achieve that? Yes, that's exactly so, the next question. I wanted to know the how, um, right. because 
as you rightly point out, there's a lot of posturing from Jason Kenny all the time about fixing the relationship with Ottawa, standing up to Ottawa, but there's never an or else on the table. So how do we get to the or else? Well, exactly. That's that's the point. And I, I remind the listeners as well that no federal government and no provincial government has ever been able to protect Alberta's interests or assure Alberta's future prosperity. So to think that Mr. Kenny is going to be able to do that by being a nice person um, and using logic, it just isn't going to work. He needs the economic clout that comes with Alberta being able to control all of its own affairs. And it can only happen um, if Alberta has a referendum um, on independence. So now, how can this happen? Well, as as someone who was the major co-author of what you see on the website of the Wild Rose Independence Party in terms of the founding principles, the purpose, the vision, the mission, and the policies, it's pretty easy for me to to speak to this. So uh, fundamentally, what is required is um, to achieve independence is for the independence movement um, to be able to inform, educate, engage, and inspire all Albertans on the rationale for independence, the merits of independence, how we would make it happen, and how we would assuage the concerns of those people who would be concerned about about Alberta independence. And um, if you will, what has been drafted is the algorithm to achieve those objectives. It's quite lengthy. Uh, But if I were to boil it down, what it would require, for example, would be for the three independence parties of of Alberta to come together under one banner. And I think for those people who are independence minded, they're virtually demanding that that occur. How it will occur with respect to the various boards is another another matter, but I hope there's enough goodwill for for that to take place. Either prior to a merger such as that, or with the three of them working independently together, um, what is is required um, is for the independence movement to influence several hundred thousand people in Alberta to buy into independence as the only path forward to uh, improve their quality of life, uh, to be the best place to uh, start a business, uh, start a family, and and uh, live life, um, you know, uh, with freedom and self determination. So, so one of the things that has to happen is that hundreds of thousands of people need to align themselves with the independence movement. Pick your party. Personally, I think WIPA is way ahead of everybody else. The Wild Rose Independence Party of Alberta is way ahead of everybody else. I think there are around 7,500 members at, at, this, at this point in time, and it, it's, it's been growing fairly rapidly. So I'm very pleased with that. Uh, but, but apart from that, um, all of the, um, all of the uh, CAs need to be set up, the constituency associations. And again, this begs the question of the three parties uh, coming together. But finally, it requires resources. People have to be um, willing to support the independence movement because how do you get the message out to um, all Albertans with respect to the rationale for independence, the merits of independence, how we'll make it happen and how to assuage the concerns? How do you get that message out when the mainstream media doesn't carry it? So you're gonna need billboards and and taking out advertisements and papers, newspapers, um, whatever is required to buy uh, time within the mainstream media and, you know, um, media such as Rebel News and the Western Standard and and True North, et cetera, are doing a fantastic job, but but they have a limited readership. I mean, it's large, but it, it doesn't get to all Albertans. And Alberta has to be the region that leads the independence movement in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, 
in terms of Western Canada, in my opinion. So it takes, it takes signing up members and it takes resources uh, to, get the, to get that message out. And that's how it, it, it can happen. There's a lot more detail in there, you know. Um, and one of the things that I get challenged with from time to time is, well, how do you deal with certain issues such as being landlocked or how do you deal with vote splitting, et cetera, et cetera. And there's, 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 there are 15 items or 15 points that we've identified uh, for which we have what I think are very cogent uh, responses. So they're not all firmly fixed in my head, but I have them here. It's just that it would take a long time to go through all sure. of that. Yeah. Sure. I was thinking about that the other day with regard to the Alberta independence movement. We get a lot of uh, people saying, well, but what do you do about this? And what do you do about that? And looking back, the Quebec independence movement, they sort of addressed all those how the the mm-hmm. uh, fine details of how and they got their movement to the point of well do they really want to stay or do they really want to go they had taken care of all the what do we do about the RCMP what do we do about the military that are stationed here should we vote for independence what do we do about the pension plan they already uh, dealt with that so um I, I guess my question is when people ask those questions, mm-hmm. are, are we ready to give those answers to the point where um, that it's not even a question anymore? Because it became at some point not a question when dealing with Quebec. Yes, um, I, I absolutely think so. I think the, um, the arguments uh, in favor of independence in terms of dealing with all of those 15 points um, are very cogent, very easy to understand, and are very persuasive. And the point that I'm getting at here is that messaging needs to get out, and, and, and it will uh, yeah. get out. And um, um, I mean, really, what more, what more can we do? You know, the, the, like, 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 let's take, for example, just, just a couple of things. Take pensions, for example. Sure. People are concerned about their pensions. They don't need to be concerned about their pensions. For example, right now we're overpaying into the Canadian pension plan, uh, plan three billion a year, which is not recognized as pension funds eligible for Albertans. It just goes to the general coffers. So we're overpaying pensions. But people who are pensioners, um, they will still get their 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 pension um, because what we don't know yet is in negotiating uh, the final terms of separation. Does um, for people who have Canada Pension Plan uh, right now and, and old age security, um, do they want to just keep it from Canada, or does will Canada negotiate with Alberta and say you guys take it back? We'll give you X amount of money, um, which is your component of it, and then um, and then Alberta runs the the Alberta Pension Plan and the Alberta Old Age Security Plan but has more money to put into it. So, so those negotiations haven't taken place yet. But for example, if, if a retired individual simply wants to keep their Canada pension plan and their old age security, it doesn't matter if they're living in France or they're living in South Africa, or they're living in China or they're living in Alberta, they're still gonna get their pension, even if Alberta is a sovereign nation. So. So when you think about it from that from that point of view, people don't need to be to be concerned, um, um, you know, about pensions. You know, just, just as one example. Sure, and I think the other example people use a lot is, oh, well, you know, Alberta's landlocked. And for me, I look at that and say, well, I'd much rather have um, a sovereign Alberta no- negotiating with the United States for pipeline access. Than have it go through Justin Trudeau's ineptitude. Well, let's let's take that one, um, and and I'll give you all of the arguments against that because I think you know we could go through all fifteen concerns such as landlocked, vote splitting, pensions, collection of taxes, engagement yep. of the indigenous population, abortion, consolidating the independence parties, supremacy of God, family and business, travel, firearms, um, etc., policing and military. 
possible flight of business and capital, et cetera. We could, we could drill down on all of those, but let's just talk about um, um, being landlocked. Yeah. So we're already land slash policy locked, right? Yep. We're, we're, it's both, but we're mainly policy locked right now because we can't get um, our natural resources to tidewater uh, with, um, as we've seen because of um, Bill C-69 and um, Bill C-48. Now, you're right, most trade goes south. Um, so the next thing is, is it wouldn't really be in Ottawa's interest to effectively embargo Alberta as much as leftist governments on Ottawa and several provinces might protest, they still need Alberta's energy. Without it, energy prices across Canada would certainly skyrocket. Um, and, and we're gonna see that with respect to, I think it's the colonial pipeline in the US mm-hmm. that was hacked. Yes. And, um, and there's gas stations now down there right now that are on that line and a whole bunch of states are on that line. Um, can't get can't get fuel to allow people to come and and uh, fill their car up. Anyhow, as an independent nation, Alberta would have the legal and political right to play hardball with Ottawa to force market access. As a province, all Alberta can do is complain. Um, fear tactics to quell Western sentiment for independence. Well, um, that's definitely going to be used, um, uh, but at the same time. Uh, you know, we just have to not be fearful. Um, We can't be worse off than we are now. I mean, like I said, we're already policy locked. So how can it get worse? We know that the intention is to shut down the Alberta uh, oil and gas industry. So if we do nothing, that is exactly what is going to happen. So who knows how negotiations would go following uh, independence for Alberta? Um, Personally, I think they would go very well. Thanks to the First Nations, um, if Canada is divisible, then provinces are as well. For example, if the population north and east of Hope, BC voted for independence, would the Southwest population and Vancouver Island residents deny the Northwest to access ports at Prince Rupert, Kitimat and Stewart? This would give Alberta port access if we had, um, if we were independent. The United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea in 1982 provided rights for landlocked states um, um, to the sea, Articles 124 and 125. International law does provide uh, leverage. Take Switzerland, for example. Landlocked country has no problem getting its products. If it's necessary to deal with an intransigent Canada or British Columbia, we can always block east and west traffic of goods and services and people. But again, this gets to the point, it doesn't serve anybody's good doing that. we could, we, we could also be assisted, um, although I'm not sure where we are with this anymore, um, by certain U.S. regions with respect mm-hmm. to Keystone, as well as access to tidewater via the Gulf of Alaska. But, you know, in the final point is it's sort of the definition of insanity. You know, given that no federalist Alberta government has ever been able to protect Alberta's interests, like I said before, a vote for the UCP or the NDP will simply perpetuate the ongoing uh, destruction of our economy and the devastation of Alberta's um, livelihoods until we really truly are a have not province. Um, and I think only an independent Alberta can uh, reverse that trend. And is there a chance, is there a slim chance that uh, we could remain in Canada? Yeah, there's a slim chance. But um, do we want to remain in Canada as an impoverished region? Or do we want to remain in Canada as a full partner where we control our own destiny um, and um, we have control of our natural resources? We have the uh, ability to uh, be more competitive with respect to how we provide health care at less cost with greater access. Um, and the, the, the only way to improve Alberta's role in confederation really is if you have the hammer of a mandate from Albertans on independence. That's the only that's the only lever that we have that will bring them to the table. Bending down and begging on uh, bending down on, on one knee or even two knees and begging uh, for help isn't going to cut it. Look at what Jason did when he asked for six billion dollars back. He got seven hundred million. Yeah. So 
so uh, you know, and 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 this kind of thing is going on and on and on, and 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 it has for the last hundred and um, fifteen years, and I don't see why it will change. Uh, the the interests of the East will always subordinate the interests of the West, um, and there's not a thing that we can do it to do about it. It's really the tyranny of democracy, you know, where the uh, the voting power is in the East, and there's not a thing we can do about it. You know, this next election will be really fascinating to see. Uh, provincial election will be fascinating to see what. Well, federal first because the federal one is yep. coming, and. Uh, but I will predict that uh, the Liberal Party won't get one vote out of Saskatchewan or Alberta. No, no, I don't think so either. And it won't matter one bit to the Liberals. And yeah. that's the problem with Confederation. Now, I yeah. guess the question remains, will our own government allow us to ask this question of ourselves? Should we stay or should we go? You mean the UCP government? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know something? I, I've, I've thought about this. Um, and, you know, one of the meetings that I had with Jason Kenney uh, prior to the uh, provincial, last provincial election, uh, we met at the mark and I brought two documents to give him. One was the document that I drafted for Ralph, um, Alberta's role, um, uh, yeah, improving Alberta's role in confederation, status quo, refederation, autonomy. That 61 page document I gave to him. And I also discussed with him the question that I posed to Ralph as well. And I gave him a docu document about Medicare is killing us re-engineering the health Canadian healthcare system. And, um, and at, that, at, that, at that particular time, um, I thought that uh, Jason um, was uh, far more strategic um, than, and maybe I'm missing something here, but than what I've seen so far. But he is a master politician. So think about um, what happens over the course of the next uh, 18 months. Let's say, for example, the Wildrose Independence Party has signed up 300 or 400,000 members to it. Now, when, when the UCP party was elected, I think they had 130,000 members. Yep. Um, but what would, what would he think if there were three or 400,000 members signed up with the Wild Rose Independence Party. So being a, a, a master strate uh, uh, strategist, <laughs> a master strategist, and, and I think he is a pretty good strategist, mm -hmm. uh, he could simply say, after the equalization referendum, uh, which he will win, but he'll, he won't get any traction with Ottawa, I'm convinced of that. He could simply come to Alberta, Albertans and say, you know what, folks, I've tried my best to fix um, our relationship uh, with Canada. I've tried my best to fix equalization. They're not willing to do anything about it. Um, I've come to a, a point where I believe that our only path forward um, or that we have to take a new path forward outside of confederation. I mean, he could get to that point. Sure. Um, but whether he will or not, I, I, I just don't think he will. I mean, he isn't about federalist. And, uh, but, you know, it's, it's like I say, take the, the, the whole concept of cognitive dissonance, the inability to change your mind based on new information. Does he have cognitive dissonance? With respect to moving on COVID-19, it would appear that he's been conflicted, right? Because sometimes mm -hmm. he said, well, you know, we made a mistake on lockdowns, but here he is again. So does he have cognitive dissonance with respect to the whole concept of independence? Maybe, but maybe he could overcome that and recognize that independence is really the best path forward uh, for Alberta. Um, I can't say... Um, you know, half the time, I don't know what I'm thinking, never mind what he's <laughs> thinking, you know, so, uh, so anyhow, um, I don't know if that sufficiently answers your question uh, regarding the, the current government. Um, I, there are people in caucus that I know of that are very strong supporters of independence. Yes. Um, and maybe not so much as independence from the perspective of leaving the, the Commonwealth 
but they very much are with respect to leaving Canada. Mm -hmm. Yes, I've heard that too, um, in some private conversations with some members of Jason Kenney's caucus that, and, and they're like anything, there's a, a, a diversity of views on what independence means. Does it mean more autonomy within Canada? Well, I think that's, that ship has sailed that Ottawa is never going to let us have that. Does it mean joining the United States? Does it mean leaving the Commonwealth? Does it mean being an independent country within the Commonwealth? I think those are all discussions that um, people will have, I think, Mm -hmm. um, within the separatist movement, I think probably over the next 18 months Mm -hmm. to two years. Uh, Dr. Dennis Modry, Thank you for being so generous with your time. I think we're approaching about 50 minutes <laughs> together. Um, once again. Once again, I, it's wonderful. Um, I have to do very little talking um, and a lot of listening, which is great for me. Uh, you have a lot to say, and it's very fascinating. Um, I wonder what we can have you on next to talk about. Well, I don't know. I mean, um, how COVID-19 can screw up a... Uh, retirement uh, that would be one I can speak <laughs> well to you know <laughs> no I don't I, I don't know I think it's going to be an ongoing evolution mm-hmm. with respect not only to COVID-19 and with respect to independence and you know certainly um, you know it would be uh, not unreasonable to talk in more detail about uh, things pertaining to the rationale for independence uh, sure. the, mer- the merits of independence you know how people's lives can be dramatically improved at every single level um, and how, how independence even appeals uh, to um, people who are within the NDP um, um, and the unions. I mean, you know, workers want jobs. Unions want employees uh, who have jobs. What, yep. what generates that? A booming economy. What's the best sure. way to achieve that? And so, so I think the answers uh, to a very large extent um, to all of this uh, can be a subject for another conversation. I look forward to it. Thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Modry. Great. Thanks a lot, Sheila. Thanks. All the best. And goodbye, everybody. independence movement in Alberta has a bit of a communication problem right now. And in Quebec, they were able to get past the how of how it would all happen to be able to ask the question. And I think that's the stage the separatist movement is at in Alberta. People are asking how. And if they are able to answer those questions, then I think it's time to ask the question, should we stay or should we go? Well, friends, that's the show for tonight. Thank you, as always, for tuning in. I'll see everybody back here or wherever I might be, but at the same time next week. And remember, don't let the government tell you that you've had too much to think. 